Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do, remember your health. Whatever you do. So welcome, welcome to this uh, issue of the podcast and audio podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. Uh, today, we want to uh, address a, an issue that has been quite hidden from uh, scrutiny over the last two years of the pandemic. That is the, the continuation of the more chronic epidemics that had been ongoing before COVID-19. And one of them, a very important one, is obesity. I mean, just before the pandemic, we had reached 40% prevalence of adult obesity, 20% among children. And we don't know exactly what is happening during the, uh, the pandemic. And in a few months or weeks, uh, we are going to look at the data and probably be uh, appalled by uh, what has happened during those two years. So we are publishing this month an article by Ben Krissinger that shows that one of the tools that there were many, a lot of hopes in, uh, that is the use of excise taxes to reduce consumption, may not uh, work as uh, well as uh, expected. There may be ways to uh, avoid or escape those taxes. And so maybe in this new period that after COVID, we would need more creative ways of thinking about how to reduce consumption. So my two guests are highly, you know, have great expertise in these issues and will be able to address the question, where are we with this obesity epidemic and what should we do uh, to control it in the coming future? So I'm uh, inviting you, Marion, to introduce yourself. Well, I'm Marion Nessel. I'm the Paulette Goddard Professor of Nutrition Food Studies and Public Health at New York University Emerita. I'm retired. This is what retirement looks like. <laughs> Thank you very much, Marion. And you, Ben? And I'm Ben Christinger. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford. And my research is interested broadly on place and health. Um, and I come to this issue through my interest in the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, where I'm really interested in how SNAP characteristics influence place, like where and how SNAP is spent. Happy to be here. So maybe I, add, maybe I should add that I write books about food politics, um, and I'm very interested in SNAP as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I invite our, our, our readers uh, to uh, Google, you know, the, the CVs and, and uh, the record of our both uh, in, interviewees. I mean, they are both very impressive. All right, so let's start. And I would like to start with you, Marin. Where are we in this uh, obesity epidemic? Do we see something? Do we know what's going on over the last two years? We're only talking about COVID-19. What's going on with obesity? Well, the current figures from the CDC are that 75% of America, 74% of American adults are overweight or obese. And about 35% of children. Uh, there's quite a, this is overweight and obesity combined. 
there's quite a bit of evidence that children have gained weight over uh, the COVID pandemic. With adults, it's a little bit more complicated. Some have gained weight, some haven't. It looks like about half of adults have continued to gain weight and the prevalence of overweight and obesity has continued to rise. Whatever COVID has done, it hasn't helped. And of course, what's really alarming about it is that obesity and its health consequences in type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, and so forth, make COVID the outcome of COVID worse. And so we have a situation in which we're not doing enough to prevent this kind of problem, and we're not doing enough to help Americans stay healthy in the face of the COVID pandemic, which doesn't seem to be getting any better. And I mean, those are averages across the United States, but I mean, some population are much more affected than others, no? Oh, well, there's no question about that. And just as with practically everything else in public health, there are enormous inequities uh, with people of low income, low social status, Blacks, Hispanics. I mean, the inequities that are in every other aspect of society show up in this as well, where if you're Black and poor, you are much more likely to have a terrible outcome from COVID-19 than if you're rich and white. Uh, what a surprise. <laughs> so, Ben... Do we know how SNAP is related to obesity? Yeah, so there, there's a, a lot of research on this that it comes at it through slightly different ways. I mean, I think that the big picture is that it's really difficult to disentangle the effect of poverty from the effect of SNAP. Um, I think, you know, some, some research suggests that there is no relationship between like obesity and SNAP. Others sort of point toward like perhaps some modest impacts. I mean, I think the, the bigger question, again, is sort of like, what is disentangling? What is the effect of getting this, you know, income benefit of SNAP uh, from, from the broader, like, challenge of, of shopping while poor, of eating while poor? I would say that, you know, despite some, I guess, like, popular press around it, like, the, the obesity SNAP sort of relationship is not clear. And it's certainly not, like, known that SNAP increases obesity in a sort of causal way. Um, there, there, I mean, there's, there's other studies that sort of look at like the healthfulness of purchases between SNAP and SNAP eligible populations. And again, I think getting at like the mechanism that explains, you know, why SNAP purchases are less healthy or more healthy. I think those are important questions that maybe like these population level data sets don't quite get at. But, but wouldn't, wouldn't we expect the opposite that receiving a... Uh... Uh, a support, financial support, uh, might uh, help the quality of the diet and reduce uh, obesity? So it can. Uh, I think, you know, we, we have other programs like WIC, where essentially, you know, that the kinds of items that are, you know, eligible for purchase through WIC are, are nutritionally screened. So, like, we, we, we know that, like, certain kinds of food assistance programs can have a clear, like, nutritional impact. I think the question with SNAP is, is broader and, and it has something to do with sufficiency. So we, we also know that SNAP benefits aren't quite sufficient, you know, and, and lots of research has shown this. It helps prevent against hunger and sort of deep poverty, but it doesn't necessarily bring people to the level of having what we might consider to be an adequate or appropriate shopping budget for, for an individual or for a family. So again, it, it's, it's helpful and it prevents 
it's against the worst poverty. Um, but it's again, I think most researchers who look at this would say it's not sufficient to, to achieve the sort of healthy diet that we might you know, aspire to. And so, Marin, I mean, among the books you've uh, written, and I have to say I, I've uh, read uh, many of them and I enjoy them very much. One is soda politics. And so you are an expert on uh, soda politics. And uh, what, what's the connection today that we know about soda consumption and the obesity epidemic? Well, I think the easiest way for me to describe it is an anecdote. I wrote Soda Politics as an advocacy manual. Uh, it, it describes throughout the book efforts made by advocates to reduce soda consumption under various circumstances. And that's really what the book was about, was to encourage it. But after it came out, I got letter after letter after letter or email after email from people saying, I read your book, I stopped drinking sodas, I lost 10 pounds. I read your book, I stopped drinking sodas, I lost 20 pounds. Uh, the record was 80. Somebody wrote me and said, that was the only change I made in my diet, I lost 80 pounds. And I think that what that tells you is that sodas, uh, which have sugars and water and nothing else of any nutritional value, um, and and have an enormous amount of sugar and an enormous number of calories. Those are excess calories that come into the body very quickly, mess up metabolism. But more than that, people don't recognize the number of calories that they're consuming from sodas. And I have an anecdote about that too, where we asked students at NYU how many calories they thought there were in an eight ounce soft drink and how many calories in a 64 ounce uh, uh, soft drink. And we didn't expect them to know, but we did expect them to multiply by eight, eight eights or 64, right? Um, but in fact, the multiplier was three. And when we went back and asked the class, why? You know, you may be mathematically challenged, but you're not that mathematically challenged. They said 800 calories in a soft drink was impossible. It was- so give us, You, you have, have to give us the answer. answer. I mean, why was, was it in the small and the large one? An eight, ounce, an eight ounce soft drink has 100 calories. A 64 ounce uh, soft drink has eight times as many, 800 calories. Um, but you know that's a big gulp or a double gulp or something like that. But the students thought that number of calories was impossible. It's water, you know, it just, it's just sweetened water. It doesn't, you don't feel those calories coming in. They don't make you full. And that's one of the insidious factors about sugary drink consumption. And that's why I tell anybody who wants to lose weight, if you're drinking sugary drinks, stop. Yeah, but uh, I mean, it's not been easy to reduce soda consumption. How would you explain that? Well, it actually has been easy. Soda consumption in the United States has dropped dramatically for over the last 20 years. I think by 30 to 40 percent, it's just an extraordinary amount. It has the soda industry extremely concerned. And what they've done, because they can't sell them in the United States anymore, is they've moved their marketing overseas where they're very successful. Um, in raising soda consumption among people in countries that have never had these things before. 
Uh, but it's way down here because the advocacy, they blame it on soda advocacy, anti-soda advocacy. I do too. I think it's been very successful. The tax initiatives, the education um, that has gone along with the tax initiatives, the recognition of how hard the soda industry has fought against any public health measures. Uh, these things have all encouraged people to realize that they're not good for you. Mm -hmm. but so not, every, not everybody and there are inequities in that also. So it's had a much greater effect on white wealthy people than on people who are low income uh, minority groups and so forth are still still see sodas as something that is part of their culture and very important for them to continue to drink. And there's a long history of, for that too. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, Ben, there's been a long debate you know, and discussion about whether people could buy sodas with their SNAP income. So do we know where we are there? Is there really a larger consumption of soda among people who get SNAP or is it just the normal amount? What do we know about that relationship? Yeah, so... I guess different people have, have looked at that and they have found that there's more sort of purchasing among, I guess, snap, um, snap shoppers. But it's, you know, I would say like the question I think is, is slightly, yeah, so it slightly misses the point. So again, it's it sort of, um, we, it, we're trying to disentangle the effect of poverty versus the effect of snap, right? And I think, you know, snap, uh, participants are by definition sort of poor, right? So yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I struggle with this this question because it's very popular in public health, you know, to sort of debate whether or not we should restrict what SNAP can can buy. And I think ultimately I fall down on the side of, of that we shouldn't be restricting what SNAP can can purchase just for a variety of reasons, some logistical, but others just sort of fundamental on, on terms of people's agency and ability to sort of purchase things in the same way that you or I uh, might be able to purchase things, not adding this extra layer of stigma on uh, SNAP participants. And I think there are other ways that we can achieve the same public health aims that we have, like incentive programs or education. Like, I think there's other, we've got other tools in the public health toolkit to deploy maybe before we, we start to consider something like adding additional restrictions on SNAP participants. Yeah, and on these other tools, you know, I was interested in, in your article when the uh, you mentioned the, the difference between the type of taxes that have been imposed on alcohol and tobacco, which I think clearly work, and these excise taxes at the city level, which seems to be much easier to, you know, escape. So, so what would you say? Why don't we go towards a kind of alcohol and tobacco tax, uh, which would be at the state level and would be hard to escape? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's, you know, just basic sort of some political answers to that. And I think, you know, Mary might have some other thoughts about the politics of it. But, you know, local leaders sort of have have that tax authority. And so I think in many cases, absent state level initiative, local leaders say we're going to do something. Um, as you say, like there's some boundary effects there. And, and depending on the geography of the place that you are and sort of ease of cross border shopping, and maybe also like the, the severity of the tax, like that might explain some of people's willingness to avoid it by just going across the border to, to sort of enjoy not like a non-taxed um, sort of food environment. 
but again, I think, yeah, there's a political question, there's a geographic question, and, and yeah, in terms of what's being discussed in state legislatures, maybe that's something that Marion knows, knows a bit more about. Marion, uh, you, you've been following those things, clearly. Yeah, I'm, um, you know, interested in the whole SNAP question in part because I have a doctoral student who's just finishing his degree, who's written a quite extraordinary dissertation on the history of SNAP in which he demonstrates, I think, beyond any argument, that the main force uh, for developing SNAP was the retail food industry, which saw it as a way to get government benefits. And his dissertation, which I hope he will write up in articles as quickly as possible, uh, documents, I think, beyond any kind of dispute that this is a retail program. Uh, whose main proponent is the retail food industry. And one of the reasons why you can't even talk about the idea of restricting sodas from SNAP or any other junk foods from SNAP is because the retail industry is so forcefully engaged in this and using the argument of stigma to prevent any kind of discussion of public health measures in this. And we're caught up here in um, when 74% of the adult population is overweight or obese, the issue of stigma becomes enormous because it's everybody, it's normalized. Um, it, uh, being overweight is normal now. If you have 35 to 40% of children who are overweight or obese, that's normal. Um, and you don't want to stigmatize people, but on the other hand, you do want policies that will restrict what the retail food industry is doing. To tr its purpose is to sell more food. That's its, that's its goal in life. And the, the goal of food companies is to sell more food. That's their goal. Their goal isn't to make people fat. That's just collateral damage. But so in your experience, what should be those policies? What, what do you think uh, from uh, the experience of the last 10, 15 years uh, we, sh we know now we should do? Well, I think we need to restrict food industry marketing. Um, in many, just the way we restrict marketing of cigarettes in exactly the same way. Um, and it's much easier to do now because we now have a definition of the foods that are causing the most problems which are called, which are what are now called ultra-processed foods. And these are industrially produced foods that are deliberately formulated to overcome feelings of satiety, to be addicted if you want to look at it, to be addictive if you want to look at it that way. Um, and we have so much evidence now, hundreds of studies over the past five years that show that consumption of these foods is associated with obesity type 2 diabetes, heart disease, overall mortality, and now liver disease is in that mix. And we have a controlled clinical trial that shows that people who eat ultra-processed foods consume more calories. So what more do we need? We need policies to restrict uh, ultra-processed foods. And if we had a government that was serious about public health, that government would be looking at the full range of food policies to try to reduce the cost of healthier foods, increase the cost of ultra-processed foods, and discourage their manufacture and marketing. People have been talking about marketing to, to marketing of these products to children for years. It's time we did something about it. 
So, so this issue of ultra processed food, are there some initiatives that are taken in terms of policy or are there states or cities? I mean, same way as things have been done against. Uh... Uh, Latin America is way ahead of the curve. Chile, Colombia, Brazil uh, have all instituted policies that are aimed at ultra processed foods. They have dietary guidelines aimed at ultra processed foods. And they, are, they have warning labels. Um, they're starting to do marketing restrictions. And you know, these are being evaluated, whether they're going to do any good in the face of a food environment that is designed to sell more food, not less. Uh, we don't know yet, but we're up against a very, very difficult problem that it seems to me requires concerted action from absolutely everybody and certainly from governments that are going to be faced with the cost of these things. Mm -hmm. and, and Ben, have you come across uh, ultra-processed food in your research? Uh, do we know anything about, you know, SNAP beneficiaries and ultra-processed food that you can tell us about? Sure. So I'll, I'll just quickly answer your question. No, I haven't. But I, I did want to pick up on something Marianne said around, around marketing, because I think you know, at least in, in my study in Philadelphia on, on the soda tax, I mean, that was one thing that I, I was left with questions about, that essentially what was happening in the local marketing environment, you know, around the same time the tax was introduced. So Mary mentioned that there's a lot of advocacy, you know, promoting sort of messaging around that the adverse health impacts of soda consumption that, that like tax proponents do around the time to sort of motivate the tax. But there's just as much sort of on the other side, right, from industry sort of saying, you know, these are the reasons that you shouldn't accept the tax. And I mean, I the, what I saw in terms of like the shift in spending and shift in shopping, it wasn't just, you know, I can't say this for sure. But it was on a, a sort of size that it makes me believe that it wasn't just people leaving, crossing the border to buy soda. Like these are grocery shopping trips. So, you know, from other research and the like qualitative research, I, I've done it sort of makes me wonder what's the messaging, what's the marketing and messaging that's happening around that same time from retailers just across the border or just inside to sort of say, you know, come, come here, like come to us. Like it's, I struggle to sort of piece together that just, just the tax alone is the signal to motivate someone to, to buy all their groceries um, or try a new retailer just across the border. So I do think that the marketing question and, and, investigating that a little more closely is, is really essential and, and yeah where, where regulation you know can play a role in, in sort of restricting um yeah the targeting of certain communities i think all of that has to be on the table yeah i mean we have we have policies throughout um the government that promote obesity and at least that's how i see it um you know we had the, the price of ultra processed foods uh, the, the prices of all foods have increased since 1980, but the price of ultra-processed foods has gone up much, much less than the price of fruits and vegetables, um, in part because of government subsidies and the government allowing the cost of marketing of junk foods to be deducted from uh, companies' tax returns. And these kinds of things uh, where we don't have any kind of concerted strategy or any kind of effort at the highest possible government levels to try to bring together all the policies and have them promote health rather than the health of corporations. Um, you know, I think we need changes and I think we need them now.
-hmm. And COVID mm -hmm. points this out in a way that's never been pointed out quite so forcefully. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I have the impression from what I'm hearing today is that uh, this uh, epidemic of uh, ultra processed food consumption has been going on a little bit, you know, without, uh, uh, you know, being really well observed. I mean, I, I, I know some reports, but uh, there's much more information about soda. And what you're saying, Marin, is that soda is a successful story. So we really need to focus now on uh, uh, ultra-processed food. That's what you're saying. And uh, so what would you recommend as the main uh, policy uh, change that should be done now uh, with respect to these determinants of obesity? Mm, number one, stop marketing junk food to children. Um, you know, I mean, there are all kinds of legal and uh, other kinds of reasons why that may be very difficult. And I'm not talking about the politics of this. The politics of this is obviously impossible at the moment. Uh, but um, your journal, Alfredo, published an article a few years ago that impressed me very much. And it was on the importance of setting unrealistic goals in public health um, and the reasons why. Such goals uh, inspire people, set agendas for action, do all kinds of really useful things. And sometimes you really, they really work. So they're worth, they're worth working toward. And so I have a list of policies that I wish we had, starting with marketing, stopping marketing to children, but also keeping food companies out of public policy discussions restricting all kinds of things that food companies are currently doing seems to me uh, the way to proceed. And the, there was a commission in The Lancet a couple of years ago that came out with an agenda for food company regulation that I thought was terrific and we ought to implement immediately. Thank you. And, and from your perspective, uh, and from the perspective of uh, SNAP, you know, beneficiaries, what do you think should be done in order to improve the quality of their diet? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as a first step, just making sure benefits are sufficient. Like, I think we, we, we know that there's a gap between the sufficiency of benefits and what's needed to sort of sustain a health the diet that works for people who are in a lot of them in work and in low paying work. So I think bringing benefits to a level of sufficiency is really key. Um, and it's a structural determinant of health. I mean, we know that if we don't address those, we end up coming back to them in other ways. Um, so that would be one thing. I mean, I think layered on top of that, we can imagine like these sort of incentive programs that steer people toward sort of healthier items and also sort of reward them by, you know, boosting the benefits. So there's been these double up programs and I know Massachusetts has trialed something at the state level. So when you spend SNAP benefits on, on fruits and vegetables, you get an additional increment added. And so again, that's a more sort of, it's a, it's a um, reward instead of a punishment or, or restriction. And it's, again, I think it's, Anything to add to the level of sufficiency for the, the poorest Americans is, is something that's sort of desperately needed. And I would at least start there before, again, exploring kind of more restrictive, restrictive sort of measures. Thank you. Thank you, Marion. Thank you, Ben. I, I think the, the message uh, from this uh, 
podcast is very clear. I mean, we are going to be uh, to face uh, an increasing obesity epidemic and uh, we need to do uh, something about uh, the access to ultra-processed food, the advertisement, and also the quality and the sufficiency of uh, the access to decent food by poor people. And, uh, and these are urgent actions, and hopefully you will be both heard. Thank you very much. I appreciate very much your time and your expertise. Bye-bye.